In 2001, Apple released the iPod into the world. Who here had an iPod? Okay, a few of us. Last time I thought. Um, it was a huge hit, regardless of, of how many people in this room have had an iPod. Um, I remember being a kid when the iPod was released, and I wanted one so badly, right? Like, a thousand songs in your pocket. Are you kidding me? At the time, that's, that was a lot, right? And uh, to me, it was like, no more off-brand MP3 players, no more Walkman. I mean, I am in. I had to have one. My friend Lucas was the only kid I knew in my school that had an iPod. And I thought, man, this dude is so cool. He's got an iPod. I have to have one. I thought, if I just had an iPod, life would be a breeze. It would be amazing. And I remember begging my parents to get me an iPod. I would plead with them for weeks and weeks, please, can I have an iPod? Every kid in my school has one, I told them. Only Lucas had one. But uh, I pleaded with them. I told them I will never ask for anything ever again, right? I would do my chores. I would do my homework. I would do whatever it took to get my hands on an iPod, right? And um, one day, my parents finally caved, gave in, and got me an iPod. I got one, right? And uh, it was cool. It did all these kind cool things. It played your music, okay? That was pretty obvious. But it also shuffled the songs for you, which was revolutionary at the time. And it even had this incredible game called Brick. Anyone play this, okay? Uh, it was amazing. And all you had to do was go to the trusted source known as LimeWire, okay? Uh, and, and honestly, just like hijacking your parents' computer with viruses was literally just the price you paid for free music at the time, right? We have come a long way since the days of the iPod. But back then, it was the only thing that I wanted. Back then, it was the only thing that I wanted my parents to get me. Because deep down, I truly believe that if I had an iPod, I would be happy. I believe that this little device that fit a thousand songs into my pocket would somehow bring me all the joy and contentment that I longed for. But, you know, we all know that the, the longing for more, the longing for things doesn't just go away, right? It, it grows as we get older. We might outgrow our nagging our parents for things. We might outgrow some of these things. But it's my assumption that in this room, many of us have not outgrown the desire for more. If we're honest, we haven't outgrown things like greed and materialism because these things don't go away. Because I believe that, um, or, or we believe, that things will make us happy. Things like possessions or that home or those clothes will somehow make us happy. If only I had that thing, then I would be happy. If only I had that relationship, that job, or those possessions. If only one day I could somehow figure a way to get into the housing market, right? Like as if, right? That is a pipe dream that will never happen for most of us, right? Um, but we think that, that the, the life that we truly long for is really only unattainable because we don't have more stuff. How crazy is that idea, right? As the theologian Biggie Smalls once said, more money, more problems, right? The problem with greed is that it is an unquenchable desire. It's never enough. That's what greed is by definition. It's the inability to be satisfied with the things that you have. It's the lack of contentment, the life that we have been given. See, greed is desire to possess or own or buy things that we do not have. And this is what James writes to the church that he's writing to about greed in James chapter 5. Listen to his gracious words. 
Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Glad you're in church. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded your wealth in the last days. And if you're anything like me, you're like, whoa, James, chill out, man. Like, what is your deal with rich people? Like, why are you using such extreme language, right? He says, he comes to the gate, he comes out swinging right into the gate. And he says, listen up, rich people, your bank accounts will be drained. Your riches will fade. Your stuff will burn like fire. And on top of that, you will stand before Jesus and be condemned in the last days because you have hoarded your wealth. Now, James isn't on some kind of vendetta against the rich, right? He's not out just to like make rich people's lives miserable with these words. It seems like it, but it's, it's not. It's a certain type of rich person that James is speaking here about. The type of person that James is writing about and, and is describing is the greedy, those who are, quote, hoarding their wealth in the last days. James is saying, in, in, in essence, you are on borrowed time. The stuff that you have, you have for a moment, but it will burn up in the end. And one day you will stand before Jesus and give an account for your life. You cannot hold on to these things, but you will give an answer for how you stewarded them in your life. See, James is warning us about hoarding stuff that won't last. He's warning us about trying to grasp so hardly after things that are going to slip out of our fingers in the end. He's writing to people who are greedy and failing to care for the needy and the poor. You know, when I was in grade two or maybe grade three, can't really remember the details, but uh, I remember there was an older kid who asked my friends and I to hang out with him during recess. Okay, so that's a big deal in grade two. Like older kid wants to hang out with us. We're saying yes. Now, the truth is he was a bit of a nerd, okay? Meaning he did really good in science class, okay? And he invited my friends and I to go and dig for crystals in the schoolyard. And we're like, okay, I didn't know there was like crystals in here, but uh, if they are, I am in, right? I am all the way in. And so we went over to the other side of the playground and we started digging and turns out he was dead right. Okay. We started digging these, these rocks that were like shiny and clear out of, out of the ground. The thing is that we didn't know as second graders is there were ice crystals. Um, but he was collecting these things for his science project. Okay. We thought we were like, just hit the jackpot. We're literally, I remember filling my pockets with these things. Right. And uh, by the end of recess, All that was in my pocket was a melted pile of dirt, right? By lunchtime, they were gone, right? This is what James is saying. You think you're filling your pockets with something. The the extra hours at the office, the life that you're pursuing, the weekends that you work, it's going to evaporate in the end. And you'll stand before Jesus at the end and give an account for it. You know, Jesus spoke about money, greed, and possessions a lot. Many scholars point out that 25, 5% of Jesus' sermons were on money. That's one month uh, or once a month. That would be me speaking about money, possessions, and giving. That's a lot. Jesus, in fact, talked about riches and greed more than any other topic in the Bible other than the kingdom of God. In fact, he talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. And he talked about money a lot. And Jesus' harshest words were not for the prostitutes and sinners. Jesus' harshest words were not for the gay community, the progressives, or the unbelievers. His harshest words were towards the religious and the rich. 
to Jesus, it was the wealthy, the influential, and the spiritual that were most often lost. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 16, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Notice these words of Jesus. You cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. It can also be translated, you cannot worship God and money. Now it says the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were convicted and said, Jesus, you're right. No, it says the, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. I hope that's not your response this morning. See, Jesus, after saying this to these religious leaders who loved money, jumps into a story in verse 19. Here's how the story goes. There was a rich man. There was a rich man, most likely, given the context, this is a religious leader that he's talking about. This is a religious person, somebody who follows Yahweh and the Torah. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So this rich man is living it up, okay? Uh, culturally, the, he, was, he was wearing purple, okay? So culturally, this is like the off-white, the fear of God, the supreme of his day. This guy is dressed in the Louis Vuitton, the Gucci of his time. And um, it says that he lived in luxury every day. This means this guy was loaded. He had a vacation home, a Tesla, a ton of crypto, like whatever you could imagine. This is your typical South Surrey rich dude, okay? And it says in verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with source. Notice that he's laid there. This, what this means is that this guy is helpless. He's got to have somebody to carry him and lay him at this gate. Meaning this guy isn't lazy. This isn't a guy just trying to live off the backs of others. This guy can't walk. This guy can't help himself. And he's dependent on someone to help him. Verse 21, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and looked his source. So this rich man's living it up. He's living in luxury every day. And Lazarus, meanwhile, is hurting. He's helpless. He's poor. He's probably covered in sores. He's crippled. And the only one caring for him is not the rich man. It's not the religious guy. It's the dogs. The dogs in this story have more compassion than this man who claims to follow Yahweh. And no, I want you to notice this morning two things about the story that Jesus tells us. First, I want you to notice that the rich man is nameless. This man would have been known by everyone in his day. Everyone would have known his name. He would have been influential and successful. You would have seen his face plastered on every bus stop and park bench. You would have seen him on Instagram and TikTok. Everyone knew his name. But now everything in his life that gave him a name, his influence and his wealth, is burned away. It's gone. And he's nameless. But the second thing I want you to notice about this story is that Lazarus has a name. It's very crucial. It's a crucial detail to this story, and it doesn't seem important until you realize that Lazarus is the only person that Jesus ever tells a story about and gives them a name. Lazarus is the only person that Jesus ever talks about and gives them a name. Everyone else is nameless except for Lazarus. Why? Well, the name Lazarus literally means God has helped, which we should be asking, like, this guy seems helpless. Nobody's helping him. He's crippled. He's begging. He even dies. No one's helping him, not even this rich man. At which point we should ask, how has God helped this man? Well, Jesus goes on to say in verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, 
where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham. Notice the language. This is a term that a Jewish person would call their patriarch Abraham. It's another um, clue that this man is a believer. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between you and us, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So graphic detail, right? Like fire, agony, and torment. And in the middle of it, what does this man ask Abraham to do for him? Notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask, Abraham, I am sorry. I repent. I I, I want to be forgiven. I am so sorry for the way that I've treated Lazarus. Please, would you take me up to heaven? Notice he doesn't ask that. But instead, he asks for Lazarus to be sent down to hell so they can rule over him once again. He wants Lazarus to come and dip his finger and serve him and so that he can rule under him. He wants Lazarus to be sent down to hell because this rich man would rather rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And we hate this. We hate that this rich religious leader would treat a poor beggar like Lazarus this way. We hate it and we want justice. We, we want somebody to, to, to do something. Think about this. This man's a Jew. This man is a religious man. And we, and we know this because Jesus tells the story to quote the Pharisees who loved money. And we want justice. See, this was the baseline of, of Judaism. This is at the heartbeat of what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh, to care for the poor and the needy. Notice that James writes earlier in the book of James, James 1.27, and says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to care for the widow and orphans in their distress. According to James, if you want to know if you have true religion, if, if you actually have true faith in Yahweh, what does it look like? Believing some stuff, singing some songs and knowing some books. No, according to James, what it looks like is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. This is the baseline. And, and, and so the question that we should be left with in this story is how could this guy claim to know God if he treated Lazarus in such a terrible way? How in the world could he ever claim to know God? But the thing is, what if we are the ones that James is talking about? What if we're the ones living in, quote, luxury and self-indulgence every day? One of the most challenging things about what James writes here is that we are probably two to three times more wealthy and comfortable than the people that he is writing these words to. I wonder if Jesus was penning these words, what language would he write to the church in North America to wake us up? We're we're probably in the top 2% of the world's wealth and income. And James writes these words to people that we're probably two to three times more wealthy and comfortable with. See, Jesus or James both would say, show me your beg statement and I'll show you the God that you worship. See, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. But here's what I believe this morning. God isn't after your money. I'll say that again. God isn't after your money. He's after your heart. But your heart follows your money. It's true. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was on family vacation. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. I'm still crispy from uh, family vacation, as you can tell. Um, and uh, my sister-in-law brought her boyfriend, okay? And uh, they're like all like romantic and gooey and like in love. And it's, it's like super cute, right? But um, 
they, they did this thing, right? Like wherever like she would be, he would be right there. Like if, if they were in the water, he'd be in the water with her, right? If they were putting on sunscreen, he'd be there with her. Like whatever like she would do, he would do with her. Why? Why would he do this? Because you, you follow what you treasure. You follow what you love. You follow what you value. Jesus said, your heart follows your money. What are you spending your money on? Because your heart's going to follow that. Your heart is something that can be calibrated. It's like a compass that is calibrated by where you spend your money. So the question I have for you this morning is what do you serve? Who's your master? Is it Jesus or is it greed and materialism? Because according to Jesus, we cannot do both. We'll either love God and serve him or we will love money and serve at the, at the altar of greed and materialism. What has your heart? James is saying, if you want to know what, where your heart is, look at your spending. James goes on to say this in verse four. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. The, actually, in the Greek, the, the word Lord Almighty actually means Lord of armies. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. See, what James is doing is he's confronting a group of rich people in this church who have gotten rich off the backs of the poor. They have failed to do justice. They're not just people who have hoarded wealth, like he says earlier, but they are also people who've become wealthy on the backs of the poor. These are people who claim to follow Jesus, but are involved in injustice. And James is talking about these rich landowners who have hired out people, mostly poor people and slaves, to harvest their crops, to mow their lawns in his language. And these rich landowners have cheated their hired hands. They have taken advantage of these poor people so that they could live in, quote, luxury and self-indulgence. In other words, they failed to pay them fair wages. And James says that their cries have reached the ears of God. In the Greek, the, the, the meaning is crystal clear. It means God is ticked, okay? And we get this. This is cruel and unimaginable for followers of Jesus to treat people like this. We want justice to be served, but what if we are the ones living in luxury and self-indulgence? See, whether we accept it or not, most of our clothing is made in other countries by women and children, just as an example. Now, the International Labor Organization estimates that there is 160 million children engaged in forced labor right now. About 80% of them are making our clothes in other countries. The vast majority of human trafficking is involved in clothing operations. See, 160 million children in slavery. Is slavery dead? No. You might not have a slave in your backyard, but you do in other countries, and we're okay with it because we want cheap clothing. We call it democracy in Canada. We call it the Industrial Revolution. We call it franchise and success. We might even call it progress and fashion, but God calls it greed and slavery. We love our stuff, and we refuse to come to grips with where it came from and the reality that most of it was made through human trafficking unsafe work conditions, and, and child labor. See, for instance, um, J, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, there's something about worshiping wealth that causes us to do all kinds of evil things in the world. For instance, financial conflict is the leading cause of divorce in our country. Caring about money, the love of money, um, also, money is one of the top motivations for people to commit heinous crimes. 
You know, when I was a pastor in PEI, there was a thief all over the news. He was breaking into people's homes, stealing their cash, valuables, anything really laying around in their homes. And the way that he would do this is he would uh, go to their house and he would cut their window screen and he would climb into their house and he'd be in and out in like minutes, right? Like this guy was good, like almost like too good. Like he was like a professional or something like that, okay? And this would happen over and over and over. It was all over the news. They were calling him the screen cutter, okay? I remember the day that he got caught. I was watching the news and I couldn't believe my eyes. This guy had been to our church multiple times. This guy was a good dude. Like he seemed normal. Like to everyone around him, he just seemed like a normal guy who was like coming to our church and he even claimed to follow Jesus. What caused him to do this? What caused him to go to such extreme lengths? He, he was called literally like the screen bandit or like the screen cutter. What caused him to do this? The love of money. The love of money, according to Paul, is the root of all kinds of evil. From child labor to cutting screens and stealing people's money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, the people that James is writing to are so focused on getting ahead. They're so focused on, on building their RSP accounts or their savings or whatever that they're doing it by cutting uh, corners and, and overlooking the poor and needy. They're failing to do justice and care for the poor. And we do this too. We're so focused on getting ahead and getting into the housing market that we excuse ourselves from being generous with our money and giving our monies to God. Or even worse, we spend our money on dumb stuff that we do not need and we have nothing left over to be generous with and to care for the poor and the needy. I remember um, when I was a young adult pastor, this was at a different church. And uh, this is a very generous church. They, they, care, they did a lot of really great things. But I remember there was a, a young person who uh, was part of my volunteer team and I had coffee with him. And I was sitting down, he was telling me like how much he was growing in our church, um, all the stuff that God had been doing in the course of about a year. And then he said something that I couldn't believe the words that came out of his mouth. He then proceeded to tell me that most of his money goes to Cactus Club and Topshop. And I was like floored in that moment. Honestly, guys, I felt like I failed as, pa as his pastor because there was such a culture um, in, in that community that, that I pastored that allowed people to feel pressured to, to dress a certain way and go to, out to eat at certain restaurants where this guy was spending the vast majority of his income on these things that were gonna perish and burn up in the end. See, what has your heart? Does money have your heart? To possessions, does your image have your heart or does Jesus have your heart? Look at what Jesus says. This is probably one of my favorite um, stories about Jesus in Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, 41, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offering were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Very awkward. And many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins. Mark has the audacity to tell us that it was worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They have all given out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. So here is Jesus. He's at the temple with his disciples, and he's awkwardly watching everybody give their money. Like, I am not going to do this, right? I'm not going to stand at the back and, like, write down, okay, this person gave this much. Oh, that person gave this much. Like, imagine the scenario of Jesus standing there watching how much everyone is giving, and what Jesus says is that rich people wrote big checks 
and they had a lot of money to give. They were dropping large amounts of money, and all of a sudden, the doors at the back open, and this poor widow walks down the aisle. She goes over to the treasury, and she drops in two copper coins. Now, Mark tells us these coins were pretty much worthless. They were worth only a few pennies. And, and, and culturally, this is weird awkward and even maybe rude it's like leaving a five cent tip in that time right like people would have been confused and shocked by this gesture but jesus then contrasts this poor widow with the rich people giving their large amounts he says they all gave out of their wealth but she gave out of her poverty he even says she gave all that she had left to live on so what's jesus point right maybe you grew up in sunday school and your sunday school teacher is like be like this poor widow give everything you have to god give until it hurts right god wants all your money right? God wants everything from you, right? That's how we like learn this, this story in Sunday school. Okay, what if your Sunday school teacher is dead wrong? That's not what the story is about at all. This is not a story where Jesus is trying to get us to be generous. This is a story that should shock us by the injustice in this story. To see this, look at the verses that come right before this. Verse 38, it says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and to be greeted in, with respect in marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Did you catch that? Just before Jesus is spying on the giving report, right? He warns the disciples to watch out for the religious leaders. He tells them to watch out for their pompous productions of religiosity, long robes, seats of importance, long prayers, and devouring widows' houses. Why does Jesus say this? Well, widows in those days were protected by religious law. Under Jewish law, widows were to be protected by the people, not the government, but by the people who claimed to follow Jesus. See, it was often uh, the, the widows who were the most vulnerable and had no one to protect or provide for them. Remember, James says that religion that God our Father uh, accepts as, as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows. But instead of caring for this woman, they demanded a higher bar of giving. They upped the ante. They said God wants more, so give him more. God, they, they, they upped and upped the rules, and they called her to give until she had nothing left. Instead of caring for her, in other words, they made her give until she was totally broke. So, so what would Jesus do in the face of such destructive religion? Well, the verses that follow this story says that as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples, most likely Judas, said, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. It's beautiful. Jesus said, Do you not see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. See, Jesus doesn't think this religious building or system is beautiful. He's not impressed by the veneer of precious stones. He sees them for what they are, blood diamonds. He's not impressed by their building projects, their haze machines, and their fancy buildings and lights. He's disgusted. And his response is, you see this temple? I'm coming back, and when I do, I'm burning this thing to the ground. That's Jesus' response. And it's like, dude, this is extreme. Jesus, I'm sure there's a few bad in the bunch, but burning it down? Are you kidding me? See, it had come to a place where this had become a costly distraction from what truly mattered. And to Jesus, it was just smoke and lights. It was a big production. It was a show. And all the while, it neglected the poor and the needy. And Jesus says, I'm coming back. And when I do, I'm burning this thing down. 
See, Ronald Rollheiser, a theologian, writes that the quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society, widows, orphans, and strangers, fared while you were alive. The idea was that standing with God depended not just on private prayer and integrity, but also on how we stand with the poor. See, Jesus, we see, we see Jesus critiquing the religious leaders of his time for tithing, but failing to do justice and care for those most vulnerable. See, Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth or a tithe of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have failed to neglect the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus is saying, I want you to still tithe, but the heart of it is justice. Generosity, according to Jesus, must lead to justice. So what does this look like for us today? Okay, how, how do we get practical with all of this information that Jesus and James are throwing at us? According to World Vision International, 9.2% of the world, or 719 million people, live in what they would call extreme poverty. This is beyond poverty, but extreme poverty, meaning they live on less than $2.15 a day. Also, many of the things that we enjoy every day, like coffee, are grown by farmers in third world countries where they are not making a livable wage. See, there are millions of people displaced from their homes right now, forced to flee and become refugees. Millions. And many of these people are young children and youth. It is estimated that 2 million children die every year from preventable diseases like the common cold. Every year. Things that could be easily avoided. Uh, this also hits close to our home. Vancouver is one of the highest uh, rated um, cities with poverty in our country at 11.2%. And according to the city of Surrey on their website, they write that over 75,000 people in Surrey live in poverty. Of these, almost 22,000 are children and youth. And yet, in addition to this, or in contrast to this, there's 2,700 billionaires alive today. 2,700 people who have over a billion dollars in their bank account. People like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, they could make a really great UFC fight, but we won't get into that. Um, their combined net worth is a whopping $12 trillion. A question for you this morning is, are they the problem? Are they, are, are they the people that we are to hold responsible for not doing what Jesus called his followers to do? Right? Here's the solution. Let's just get like Jeff Bezos to give more money. Like let's, let's hold the people who don't follow Jesus accountable for the world poverty. No, Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by the way that you love. Jesus says that justice and generosity will mark my people. See, it would be so much easier just to blame the billionaires in our globe for the lack of resources uh, globally. But the problem isn't a lack of resources. The problem is a lack of generosity from those who claim to follow Jesus. According to World Vision International, the average giving of a Christian in North America is about 1% of their income. And only 3% of Christians tithe or give 10%. Listen, we are some of the most wealthy people in the world. So what would happen if... Every disciple of Jesus, just in North America alone, gave 10% of their income. What would be possible? World Vision International estimates that the church in North America would raise $500 billion. What would happen if Christians were generous? We would change the world overnight. $65 billion alone. 
We could raise 500 billion, 65 billion alone would be enough to end global poverty. Okay, we could educate children, provide clean water, feed the hungry, uh, provide jobs. And in addition to that, we would have hundreds of billions of dollars left over to plant churches, reach the lost, fight injustice, and see heaven invade earth. C.S. Lewis, you probably heard of him. He wrote this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought of the next. See, historically, it was Christians who invented public hospitals, welfare, fed the hungry, and abolished slavery. As one author put, there was no secular abolitionist movement. This is what Christians have historically been known for. And in many ways, the Western church has lost its way. And it is time for us to reclaim the Christian vision for generosity and justice. See, we can participate in the renewal of all things by caring for the poor, feeding the hungry, and standing against injustice. And when we stand against this sin and evil in our world, we are partnering with God's renewal project. In addition to the physical poverty that I've just spoken about, there is also a spiritual poverty crisis. According to a 2021 census, 70.4% of Surrey does not identify as Christian. That's about 400,000 people at least, conservative estimate, of people who need to come to know Jesus in Surrey alone. See, as a church, we want to do everything we possibly can to reach our city for Jesus. That's why we're doing things like Alpha this fall. We want to do our best to see people come to know Jesus. We want people to follow Jesus. We want people to find forgiveness, healing, and wholeness from Jesus. So when you give, you are supporting reaching people for Jesus. Now, I want to say this. This is not about tithing. This is about generosity. A lot of people think that in the Old Testament, uh, God called his people to give 10%. That is uh, a misconception. They actually gave 23%, okay? So here's how, here's how it is broken down. The Old Testament tithe was where was about worship and justice. Um, not only did Israel give 10% of their produce to God, okay? So they, they would do that in worship. But every year, they would also take another 10% and throw a gigantic party that also had alcohol. Um, and it was a great party, food and, and all this stuff. And they would throw it for the poor and the needy. It was about justice. And in addition to all of this, giving 10% to God, 10% to the poor, they were also called to welcome the foreigner, show hospitality, leave the edges of their fields to poor, poor people, and to forgive debts every seven years. They were also called to feed the poor, take care of widows and orphans, and be people marked by generosity. So guys, I will be dead honest with you. Studying this passage for me was really difficult. If I'm honest, I am so far from what Jesus calls us to do in this passage. Um, if, if I'm honest, I, I struggle with greed and materialism, just like many of us in this room. And, and, and honestly, I have so far to go in this area uh, um, of following Jesus in generosity. So if there is a long road ahead, what do we do? Where do we go from here? What do we do now? I believe, this is very important, I believe that we have worshipped our way into greed and materialism. How did you get a, a greedy and consumeristic heart? You worshiped your way into that. You, your heart follows where you put your money. It is calibrated by how you spend rhythmically your finances. And if we have gotten our way into consumerism and greed through worship, we will only get out of this desire of worship through, or for consumerism through worship. If we want to become people of generosity, in other words, we will do that rhythmically by practicing simplicity, generosity, and justice. A quick, a quick word on each. First, simplicity. 
Simplicity is the practice of living below your means for the sake of others. Uh, many uh, Christians throughout history would actually take a vow of simplicity when they joined a local community. They would vow to living below their means as a community and live accountable to one another. We're not going to do this, but they would, they would take a vow of, of simplicity and follow Jesus by living below their needs so that they can be generous with their income. Um, so you live below your means for the sake of others. Jesus said that it is better to give than to receive. So simplicity is a way we cultivate contentment and overcome the desire for more. As we practice simplicity, we learn to live beyond the greed and uh, our greed and desire of owning and having. And we are able to, in the words of Jesus, live freely and lightly. What if living with less would allow us to truly live with more, more capacity for God, more time for relationships, more freedom for generosity, and more space to live life to the full? So this is simplicity, living below your means for the sake of others. Second, generosity. Generosity is about sharing with others because we have become to believe that God himself is generous. Or in the words of James, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. See, generosity is often the cure for the sickness of greed. The way that we worship our way into greed is by rhythmically and intentionally practicing things like shopping, desiring, putting our, our money and value here. And as we do that repeatedly, we, we form our desires, our loves, and what we worship. And generosity is a way that we form to ourselves to worship God. Um, Jim Elliott once said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Third, justice. This is at the heart of what James is talking about. It's justice. It's about the renewal of all things. Justice is caring for the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable. It's about seeing God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we have worshiped our way into consumerism and greed through rhythmic patterns, we worship our way out of greed through simplicity, generosity, and justice. So how do we do this this week? How do we get practical with this? Well, maybe this week you want to practice simplicity, and it could look like getting rid of something um, that you own. Um, it could look like maybe not eating out, saying no to eating out all week, and maybe you pack a lunch. Uh, maybe it looks like cleaning out your closet and, and, and simplifying your possessions. Or maybe it's choosing not to spend your money this week on things that you just don't need. Um, second, if you want to practice generosity, what could that look like? Well, you could give a set percentage of your income to God. You could uh, buy somebody a meal or bless somebody financially. Um, you could remember that um, we become consumeristic and greedy through worship, and we must worship our way out. So generosity. But finally, justice. Here's where I want to land. Many of us are bothered maybe by where our clothing comes from or where our possessions come from. An easy way to then stressing which, which companies are ethical, the easiest way is just go to your local thrift store and buy used. Okay, that's probably like the most ethical place you can probably buy your stuff. Um, and do that instead of fast fashion. Um, you could also practice justice by caring for the poor and the needy. Get to know somebody who maybe is at a different social status than you and care for them. Um, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I wish I could, you know, solve global poverty. Just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Um, or maybe very practically, you could contribute to Christmas in July next Sunday. Grab some toiletries, grab some toothbrushes or whatever, and just bring them next Sunday and put them in the booth. And we're going to give those to people who, who truly need them. So maybe you want to practice justice. But here's what James is getting at. He's writing to a group of people who think they're followers of Jesus because they've come to believe some stuff about Jesus. And he's hammered this again and again. But they have failed to do justice. 
and they have gotten rich off the backs of others. And in doing so, they have failed to understand who Jesus really is. Jesus is the one who became poor to save us. He is the one who came to, quote, proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind. He came to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of jubilee, the year of justice. See, it's not enough to simply believe some things about Jesus. We must join him in the renewal of all things. And how we can do that is practicing simplicity, generosity, and justice. Let's pray.